Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we ionise weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, David Bishop talks about how to detect diseases, poisons and industrial waste with mass spectrometers. And I explain how ChatGPT works and how best to use it for writing. Send it to the lab! David Bishop is an Associate Professor in Analytical Chemistry at the University of Technology, Sydney. He works with ICPMS mass spectrometers to analyse samples from the body or the environment and find out what's there for mining, environmental monitoring, medical diagnosis, forensic analysis and many more applications. I visited him at UTS and began by asking him, ICPMS, what does it stand for? So ICPMS stands for inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. It is a technique that essentially allows us to investigate metals and other elements in a variety of sample matrices, whether it be soils, sediments, food, to biological samples, including diagnostic laboratories use this when they're investigating metals in different diseases as well, and just general physiological conditions. So... When a forensic scientist or a doctor sends something off to the lab to see whether there's traces of a toxin or a drug or, or whatever, this is the sort of machine that might be used in that lab? Yeah, sure. So if you're interested in something like lead, for example, this is the instrument you would use. So there are a variety of detectors available which can investigate metals, but as far as bench-top detectors go, which are widely available, this is the most sensitive and instrument we have available and also can analyse the most number of elements at a single time. And how quickly does it do this analysis? It depends on the sample so, and also depends on how many elements you're looking for. So if, if I'm looking for, let's say, 40 different metals, which we do relatively routinely, including all the washes to make sure there's no carryover between samples, we're looking at two minutes per sample. That's astonishingly quick. I mean, how long did it take with the old equipment, say, 20 years ago? So 20 years ago, you're more likely to have a piece of equipment called atomic absorption spectrometry or spectroscopy, which is still taught in the high school syllabus, I believe. And with those instrumentation, you're more likely to be looking at one element at a time or potentially four elements at a time, which means you're greatly restricted in your analysis. So if you wanted to look at 40 metals, you are constantly having to change over parts of the instrument to, for each, each time you want to look at a different metal. Whereas with this, with the mass spectrometer detector, we can do a broad, a broad scan of what is in the sample. And how big are these devices? So, so they're benchtop detectors. So we're looking at something which has a footprint of one metre by 50 by 50 centimetres. So if you were doing environmental investigation, you could take one on site? There's a number of resources available necessary for this instrument to run, which means that it's not, at the moment, it's not really suitable for taking on site. So I believe it is one of those areas where people would love something which is portable. And you do see instrumentation being adapted and developed for, for portable applications, including 
the Luna Rovers tend to have similar kinds of instrumentation, which allows for broad metal scanning. On so for sending to it an extremely remote place like the moon or further, you might take your own with you, but otherwise you'd take a sample and send it back to the lab. Yes. So let's say, for example, people doing research in Antarctica, they may go and take core samples, send it back to labs around probably the University of Tasmania or other labs they're associated with to do analyses. So if you preserve your sample in an appropriate manner, then the metal concentration should not change during transport. So how do people have to preserve a sample? Once again, this depends on what the sample type is. So if it's a water sample, you can put a very small amount of acid. So the acid, total acid concentration is about 0.1% acid, and that'll be enough to keep all metals in solution. Otherwise, if, let's say, using the Antarctica example, if it's an ice core sample, you can just keep it frozen. Are these very expensive? As far as analytical laboratory equipment goes, it is middle to lower end of the range in regards to mass spectrometers but that is still not a cheap instrument. But they've come down from the giant ones of 20 years ago? 20 years ago, the benchtop instruments were first starting to be introduced. Previously, they were quite large floor-based instruments. And so how do these work? So there are a few main processes in ICPMS. So what we're trying to do is introduce an iron into the mass spectrometer. So ions are electrically charged molecules? Yes, correct. When we have a liquid sample, the first thing we need to do is form an aerosol. So it goes through a nebulizer to form aerosol, very fine droplets, and only droplets less than 10 micrometers will actually go through into the plasma. Now, the plasma is a very hot ionized gas. So in this case, we have an argon-based plasma, and it's about as hot as the surface of the sun. As our nebulised solution goes into this plasma, it first off desolvates, so it gets rid of all the extra excess water surrounding our metals of interest. And after desolvation, there's excess energy from the plasma which will ionise the atoms of the metals going through. And once it's atomised and ionised, it is then capable of entering into the mass spectrometer. So the plasma has an excess of electrons in it which will allow ionisation of the atoms to occur. So you've now got your metals or whatever it is you're trying to detect, which could be biological samples, could be all sorts of things. It's been aerosoled down to very tiny amounts and it's been heated up and, and electrically charged with the plasma. What happens next? It then enters the mass spectrometer. So from the mass spectrometer, it is sort of focused through into what we call a quadrupole analyzer. And here, only one iron at a time will go through to the detector. So the detector itself does not measure each metal ion itself. All it does is measure a, a signal coming through. So the analyzer is very important to separate out and only allow through one ion at a time. This is a very rapid process. And basically for each ion we're looking at, it, it can spend as little as five milliseconds ensuring that each individual ion goes through. But as I said, if, we're, if we look up to 40, um, elements at a single time, that is still a very rapid process and allows us to scan a number of times very, very rapidly so that we have some confidence in our data. So it sounds like it's going through everything in the sample once the water's gone. How big are these samples? We can get away with as little as a quarter of a mil, 
and that requires some optimization to be to be careful there. But in general, if we have five mils, that is plenty for repeat analysis if something goes wrong. The results you get back after it analyzes all of the ions will tell you the proportion of what you're looking for? So if we follow proper analytical protocol and prepare calibration curves with of known concentration standards, then yes, we can determine the proportion of each metal or element in a sample. If you were giving these results to a doctor, what would that tell them? Well, once again, it depends on what the doctor is after here. If they are interested in knowing sort of essential nutrient levels of calcium, magnesium, sodium, they could see if, if these are at normal physiological levels or, the, or if there's differences in what they expect or if they might find something unexpected like lead, mercury, arsenic and then they can, might then choose to you know, focus their treatment based on those results. So after the ions leave the mass analyzer, the quadrupole mass analyzer, they hit what we call a dynode array detector where as the iron hits the first dynode, it sends out a cascade of electrons and it'll hit a series of dynodes through the series and each dynode hits will magnify the number of electrons going through. So what we end up with is a large number of electrons reaching the final detector, which allows us to have a very sensitive analysis. So in general, with this technique, it's very common to be able to detect down to nanograms per litre or, or even more sensitive than that. So we think about how many zeros are in one nanogram per litre, we can detect down to a very low levels. How are you using these devices? I use them in a number of ways. So I do do this traditional solution analysis where I may be looking at environmental samples and want to know the composition of metals in different environmental samples. My main research interest is in looking at changes in metals, both metals which should be there and metals which shouldn't be there, in different diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. And I use a laser for sample introduction. So what I can do then is rather than having to have a solution, I can have a solid sample. So I can get a, a standard histology section. So histology section is a biopsy section which is in place in a microscope slide. So you're not talking about a blood sample, you're talking no, about a piece of tissue. So it's common to look, when, as we investigate these sorts of diseases, to do, have mouse models, and, and what they do is they obtain different organs of these mice models, and we can slice them up very thinly, put them onto microscope slides, and from these microscope slides, I can hit them with my laser, and that will send very small particles into the ICPMS, and we can analyze metals from there, and we can create two-dimensional and three-dimensional maps of the, how the elements are located in brains or whatever organ is we're looking at. So that can tell you a bit about the progress of the disease? So what it does tell us is that if there are changes in where metals are located, it can tell us where those changes are, as well as tell us how the concentrations or the amount of these metals is changing in these locations as well. Because what we find with lots of diseases is that you'll get a, an influx of certain metals into a specific region, and the type of metal is also different. So a classic example is Parkinson's disease, where you get more iron available in certain portions of the brain and that iron is actually is thought to be responsible for reactions which cause the neuron death in, in these regions of the brain. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and all of those neurological diseases, there's so much we, we still don't know about what happens. Correct, and with most of these neurological diseases, you include motor neuron disease as well, 
What they do know is that most of them are not genetic. There's probably environmental factors which are playing a role. So, for example, we've also seen mercury located in specific regions of the brain where Parkinson's cell death is occurring. Now, we can't say how the mercury got there or if it is a causal agent or is it if it was brought there by something else. But we are located in these specific regions of the brain. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. So you're able to tell something's going on that another researcher might be able to use for more investigation. Exactly. I'm not a neuroscientist, not a biologist. I'm an analytical chemist. So I can tell them what's there, and then these other researchers can then try and find out the mechanisms behind what is bringing those metals or changing those metal levels in these specific locations. So you're part of all these multidisciplinary collaborations? Yeah, that is one of the beauty of of analytical chemistry. By nature, it sits at the junction of so many disciplines because whether it be the environmental sciences or the biological sciences like we were just discussing, they often need hard information which they cannot obtain without analytical techniques. So other examples other examples of where analytical chemistry is useful, not so much in regards to metals, but whether it could be something as simple as looking at persistent organic pollutants in different samples. So all of these other situations require analytical techniques which gives them the data. So it, it allows us to be part of these big multidisciplinary collaborations. If students were interested in getting into this type of analysis to be in the lab finding out what's happening in the environment, in the body, all these different things that you can do with this sort of analysis. What should they be studying? They should be studying chemistry at UTS. (laughs) To gain a proper understanding of these techniques, it is desirable to study a chemistry degree. But what we find is that people who do study the environmental sciences or the life sciences and then go and work in industry may then get training at those locations as well as required on these analytical techniques. So you may end up using this type of mass spectrometer in a wide variety of careers? Yeah, definitely. So I know that most of the medical diagnostic laboratories contain this instrumentation, as well as the big environmental testing laboratories. There are a number of contract laboratories around Sydney and Australia which use this equipment. The mining industry uses this equipment. It is very widely used. And is it only elements that you can detect with this device? Yeah, because of the nature of the plasma, which as I said is as hot as the surface of the sun, 6 to 10,000 Kelvin, it atomizes everything. So it detects the majority of the elements in the periodic table, the noble gases, not so much, and carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, one or two others it can't detect, but it can detect the majority of the elements in the periodic table. You'd need an entirely different device if you were looking for molecules or proteins. Yes, if you wanted to look at molecules or proteins, we can use different kinds of mass spectrometers. But recent evolutions in the analysis of molecules and proteins by labelling them with metal tags has allowed us to then quantify them with inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. That is also part of my research as well. So you can tag your molecules, whether they're biological molecules or whatever sort of molecules, with particular metals so that they can be counted in the spectrometer even though you can't detect them directly. Correct. So using this sort of approach, I've used the laser technique I mentioned before 
to show that we can develop alternative biomarkers for terminal childhood illnesses as well as investigate the correlation between proteins and iron in the brains of Parkinson's disease. So we've discussed that the ICP-MS, you can detect individual elements and in particular you can label other things that are more complex than elements with metals and then detect them anyway, even after you've heated them up and ionised them and atomised them, and that the devices are used not just in analytical chemistry but in laboratories in all of the sciences, but usually in collaborations, and that you'd want to study science if you want to use one. Yes, you would want to study science, and I hope that what we've covered today also shows that the broad applicability of this instrumentation across a wide variety of fields and that's the, the main takeaway message I'd like to get home, is how powerful a technique this is with very broad applicability. Well, David Bishop, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Associate Professor David Bishop at the University of Technology, Sydney, talking about how to tell what's in your sample, be it animal, mineral or vegetable, using mass spectrometers. You can hear David speaking on this subject at the Frontiers of Science Forum at the Concord Golf Club in Sydney on Friday the 24th of March, 2023. More Frontiers of Science Forum speakers next week. Taking our gerbs. Unless you've been under a rock for the last few months, you've heard of ChatGPT. I've played with several AI tools, including ChatGPT, and found that for best results, you can't just put a simple prompt request and get something useful. For the best results, you have to have a conversation with ChatGPT and edit the results into what you want it to be. So I asked ChatGPT to explain how it works in a process of refining the output and then rewriting. It helped me write, but it didn't write this story for me, or even these words, and I had to fact check everything it wrote. ChatGPT is an unreliable oracle. It's too valuable to ignore, but you just can't trust it. ChatGPT is a large language model developed by OpenAI that can generate human-like responses to natural language prompts using a neural network. The model is trained on a massive amount of text data scraped from the web automatically, without consent, to learn the patterns and relationships between words and phrases in context. It's a direct descendant of the predictive text on your phone. The training process for ChatGPT involves using unsupervised learning, where the model is presented the scraped texts and learns to predict the next word in a sequence based on the previous words. ChatGPT is trained using a variant of a type of deep learning architecture called the transformer. The decoder in the transformer architecture allows the model to efficiently process input sequences, such as a sentence or a paragraph, and understand the relationships between the words in the sequence. A key feature of the transformer architecture is that it can process the input sequence in parallel, meaning it can look at all the words in the sequence at the same time. This allows the model to maintain context and understand the relationships between the words in the sequence, even if the sequence is very long. It also makes it work very quickly. In the context of language processing, context refers to the words, phrases and sentences that came before and after a particular word or phrase, in a sentence or text. Understanding the context 
is more important for determining the meaning of a word or phrase for humans and for generating appropriate responses by ChatGPT. During training, the goal is to make ChatGPT's predictions as accurate as possible. To measure the accuracy of its predictions, ChatGPT uses a metric called cross-entropy loss. The cross-entropy loss compares the model's predictions to the actual correct answers, which are called the ground truth. The model's predictions are adjusted in order to reduce the difference between its predictions and the ground truth. This process is repeated multiple times until the cross-entropy loss reaches a minimum value. At this point, the model's predictions are now as close as possible to the actual correct answers, and the model is considered to be trained. Once trained, ChatGPT can be used to generate text in various forms such as writing essays, conducting conversations, and answering questions. Given a prompt, the model uses its knowledge learned during training to generate a coherent and contextually relevant response. It achieves this by sampling the most likely next words given the input prompt and using that prediction to generate the final response. Prediction after prediction. ChatGPT is also capable of language translation, text summarization, and sentiment analysis, which is the emotional tone of a text. However, ChatGPT is trained on a fixed data set and doesn't have the ability to continually learn and adapt to new information, which can lead to inaccuracies and biases in its responses. It struggles with abstract concepts and generating text that's grounded in reality. Sometimes the model can generate offensive or inappropriate content. OpenAI addressed the problem by using reinforcement learning from human feedback where humans rate multiple questions and answer pairs and rank them on quality. This feedback optimizes the model by rewarding it with points. But while it helped improve the output, it didn't totally get rid of the problem. In other words, you need to check the facts in anything ChatGPT says to you and edit the words that it produces. If you just use ChatGPT to directly write essays for uni or articles for a publication, there's a high chance that some of the facts will be wrong or that some of the sentences don't make as much sense as you first thought. And even the references might be made up. You have to check everything. This is a tool that can help you work, but it isn't ready to take over your work for you. ChatGPT often repeats itself using different words, which can result in boring, waffling text. ChatGPT uses statistical patterns learned from the training data to generate text that's similar to the input prompt, but it doesn't have a true understanding of the concepts or the information in the text. It doesn't have the ability to work things out or have any real-world knowledge. ChatGPT is missing the ability to perform arithmetic or perform simple counting tasks. It doesn't understand numbers at all. If you ask it to generate text that includes counting, ChatGPT may be able to generate a response that includes the correct count, but it's only doing so based on patterns it learned in the training data. It's just as likely to make it up and confidently give you a wrong answer. I tried using ChatGPT to reproduce some calculations and it came up with the right answer. But then I asked it to double one of the numbers and it gave me the exact same answer, which is certainly wrong. If you use ChatGPT to cheat on essays by skipping the understanding and referencing, remember that ChatGPT is also cheating you by skipping the understanding and referencing. 
ChatGPT will confidently give you made-up answers alongside genuinely useful answers. Not to mention the point of writing essays at school and university is to learn how to question, research and think around a subject and argument, reflect, edit, rewrite, and then to articulate it clearly for your audience. If teachers set essays that include some sort of counting or simple arithmetic as part of the analysis in the essay, then ChatGPT will get it wrong unless the student edits and fixes it up and does some work. A large language model just can't do maths. What ChatGPT writes needs to be fact-checked by the user. However, it's astonishingly useful as a writing tool, and it's a lot of fun to play with if you like words. If you learn how to prompt ChatGPT with the right requests, questions, corrections, and requests for clarification, just like you ask yourself when you're writing an article or essay, if you can edit the results to make them sound better, include your own voice, and check the facts and references, then ChatGPT can be a really good tool to help you write more quickly and effectively. It's what Microsoft's Clippy always wanted to grow up to be. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.